This morning, I would like to speak to you on this. Here's, here's the, the title. How to know if I'm called to be a missionary. How to know if I'm called to be a missionary. Why this topic? Well, simply because it's on my heart, and I'll tell you why it's on my heart. It's because my wife and I are getting older. I'm 57 years old. Now, I'm not retired yet, but I'm getting there. We, we, we talk about retirement now. It's just kind of weird, you know? And so as I've been thinking about this, I, I'm, I'm definitely getting older. I'm beginning to wonder who the next generation of missionaries will be. Because today, thank you for the good timing on what you read. Jesus said, right, Matthew 28, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Well, until he comes back, the work of missions does not stop. Amen? Amen. So, we are looking for the next generation of missionaries. It's as simple as that. And this is a question that most missionaries are invariably asked over, the mission, over their career. How do I know if I'm called to be a missionary? It's an understandable question. Plus, you have missionaries, they come on furlough, and they always usually come with cool, I hope, reports of what they're doing. People they've seen come to Christ. They give cool stories about their work on the mission field. They give hopefully cool PowerPoint presentations, right, about what they're doing. And then at the end of their presentation, they say, hey, by the way, we're recruiting. So then you're sitting there going, huh, for me, not for me, right? Fair question. Then you've probably read those cool missionary biographies. I love those biographies. I've read many of them. And then you hear about these amazing biblical accounts, like you hit Jonah, Jonah 1, and it says, And the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come before me. So you're reading that, you're going, wow. Does God still call that way? I know you've had that question, because I've had it. Or Jeremiah, hey, before you were born, I knew you and call you to be a prophet. Or Paul or so many of these other guys that were dramatically called into the ministry. So the question is, how do you know if you're called? Well, a lot of people have theories about this. For example, you know the banana peel theory? You know, you're walking down the street, you slip on a banana peel, you fall. And it turns out that you fall with your hand open and the finger pointing. And there happens to be like this open map of the world right there on the sidewalk. And your finger lands on India. You're going, oh, I'm called to India. That's... Is that the way God does it? Let me give you a real one. We know a lady. She was reading her Bible in Portuguese, and she found this verse in Isaiah in Portuguese where the last part of one word had B-R-A, and the first three letters of the next word had Z-I-L. She concluded, God has called me to Brazil. She went. It was a complete disaster. Does that... Does that, is that the way God calls? Let me give you four overarching principles, and then I'll give you the actual keys to knowing how to be called. Just four very brief overarching principles that will help us through, think through the issue. Number one, before we get to the specific call, let's, let's look at this. First of all, you have to know that all people are called to salvation. 
All people are called to salvation. 2 Peter 3.9, you know this verse, no doubt, says, if I have find the right book, excuse me, 2 Peter 3.9 says, For the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So that we know God's called everyone to be saved. Number two, God has called saved people to serve. He wants all of us to serve. Luke 4, 8, Jesus said, It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So he wants us saved and serving. So we all need to be saved and we all need to be serving as saved people. Number three, some are called to full-time vocational ministry, but not all. Not everyone is called to full-time vocational ministry. How do we know that? Well, for example, in 1 Corinthians 9.11, or actually we could go to 9.14, it says this. Paul says, so also the Lord directed those who proclaimed the gospel to get their living from the gospel. So we know that some people, not all, are to live from the proclamation of the gospel. They are to be salaried to do that work. In the compulsion, verse 16, is that he felt compelled to preach the gospel. Some people just have to preach. Some, in Ephesians 4.11, are gifted and some are not for this particular work, it says. And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Some is not all. We know that James 3.1 says some should teach and others should not. Because those who teach incur a, a stricter judgment. In 1 Timothy 3.1, we also know that some have the desire and some not to be elders, for example. So you put all this together and you realize that some really are called to full-time vocational ministry. Others are not. So it's okay not to be, but it's also okay to be. And finally, on these overarching principles, number four, the call of God seems to fall into two general categories. We have the dramatic call like Jonah and Jeremiah and Paul. I'm not sure if those are the normative type of calls anymore, but there's also what I would call the usual call. The usual call. Acts 16 is a really good example of that. In Acts 16, 1 through 5, it's about Timothy. And Paul is going through Lystra and Derby. And there was a certain disciple named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him. And he was called into the ministry just in a normal fashion. He was a faithful disciple in the church. Paul eyed him and said, boy, this is the kind of guy I want. And he was called through that. And God greatly used him. So this morning, I would like to give you what I feel are the principles that help us understand a normal call to ministry. I'd like to give you 10 principles that will help decipher, help us decipher whether, or help you decipher this morning, whether you're called to be a missionary or called to vocational full-time ministry. That's kind of exciting, don't you think? 
Just think, maybe some of you are called to come and replace us. So let's see. Okay, here we go. Number one. Ten principles, and they're real easy to follow. They all start with the same letter, okay? Number one. Here we go. By the way, I told Rick, do you really want me to preach a sermon? This breaks all the rules of expository preaching. This is totally a topical sermon, okay? But I hope it's biblical. So here we go, okay? This is, I think this is going to be okay. I really hope so, okay? If not, you can kick me out and never invite me back. That's okay. No, I think this is really biblical. Here we go. Number one. Number one. Do you have the craving? Do you have the craving? 1 Timothy 3.1, talking about elders, it says this. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the work of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. It's interesting. The way to get an elder is the first thing to do is, do you even want to be an elder? The word aspire found three, three times in the New Testament simply means to desire something, to stretch oneself out in order to touch it or grasp something. It's used of desiring money in 1 Timothy 6.10, a better country in Hebrews 11.16, and here the office of an elder. But look what it says. It says, he who desires the office of ministry desires a good thing. And in uh, verse 1, If a man aspires to the overseer of an elder, it is a fine work he desires to do. The second word is a word that's even stronger. It's epithumia, which means to set one's heart upon something, to desire or lust after it. That word is used of lusting after a woman in Matthew 5, 28, desiring food in Luke 15, 16, or even lusting after money in Acts 20, 33. The point here is that to be an elder, you've got to want to be an elder. It's a strong desire. Listen to what Spurgeon says about this. Mark well. That the desire of spoken of must be thoroughly disinterested. If a man can detect after the most earnest self-examination any other motive than the glory of God and the good of his soul and his seeking the bishopric, that means eldership, Be better run aside from it at once, for the Lord will abhor the bringing of buyers and sellers into his temple. The introduction of anything mercenary, even in the smallest degree, will be like the fly in the pot of ointment and will spoil it all. He's saying that your desire and motive must be a very, very strong thing. In fact, this desire must be so strong that you cannot imagine doing anything else with your life. A commentator called Big said, if you could be happy outside the ministry, stay out. But it is a solemn call. If the solemn call has come, don't run. It's a longing and it grows and you can't get rid of it. And it becomes all-consuming. You've got to go, and you've got to go now. This is interesting. This is what happened to me. I got saved in India in 1976. Just a few years later, I mean, I was just consumed with the desire of going into the ministry. And I wanted to go to Geneva, Switzerland. This is what God put on my heart. So I was a flight attendant and uh, met Meg, and we were falling in love. She was a flight attendant too. And then I got laid off because Pan Am was dying, and I was junior to her in the company. So I got laid off, and I was thinking, oh, this is cool. I just got laid off. I can now go into the ministry. And I thought to myself, wait a minute. Do I want to go in the ministry because I got laid off? I thought, no, I've got to test my desire. 
I'm going to go in New York and get myself a really good job. This is just me. I, this is my, my thinking. I'm going to get a really good job. And if I'm really called, I'm going to quit. That's exactly what I did. I went and found a job and I got hired by NBC TV. That was a page. And I love the international news desk. So I'd go up there at Rockefeller Center. And John Chancellor, at those days, he was the, uh, the, the anchorman. So I'd go and, you know, meet all these people. And I was there. And one day, the head of the whole NBC TV news department came up to me, shook my hand. We talked for a while. And then he said this, no joke. He said, young man, if you stay at NBC TV long enough, one day you will sit in that seat. And he was pointing to John Chancellor's anchor seat. The guy told me I'd be the anchorman for NBC TV. I mean, is that crazy? The next day, I resigned. (laughs) Because that was the last thing I wanted to do. And I thought, okay, thank you, Lord. Now I know what I really, really want to do. I think this is the kind of desire that God wants of those who go into the ministry. You can't imagine doing anything else. Number two, number two, do you have the character? Do you have the character? It's interesting, if you look at 1 Timothy 3, the call to be an elder, it says, verse 1 that I just read, it's a good thing to want to be an elder. But then in verse 2, an overseer then must be, and he gives the qualifications, right? Above reproach, husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, etc. He gives all the qualifications to be an elder. And in 1 Timothy 5, verse 17 and 18, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. 1 Timothy 4, 16 Preacher's favorite verse says, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. First of all, to yourself and then to your teaching. You see, if you go into the ministry, if you want to be a missionary, if you want to be a pastor, you've got to have character. I mean, this is a moral call. We are representing a moral God. And therefore, we are to be above reproach in this area. Now, I say that with fear and trepidation because I know my heart. I'm forgiven by Christ. But what this means is not that you're perfect. Ask my wife. I'm not perfect. But there's no reproach in your life. Something that people can point a finger at and say, Aha, this thing keeps coming up. And I'm, I'm wondering if you're really qualified. No. Someone in the ministry deals with it and works it through and lives a godly life. That's what we're supposed to do. It's interesting, in Exodus 29, Aaron and his sons, when they were being brought into the priesthood, do you remember this whole passage where they were sprinkling blood over themselves and over people, and finally they touched blood on their ear, on their thumb, and on their toes? Do you remember that weird passage? Why? Because he was saying, you know, you in the ministry must have a sanctified ears, sanctified life, and where you go with your feet. When I became a pastor in Paris, it's really funny. I was a brand new pastor, you know, and, and uh, we had this guy in this church, Luc, and he was he worked for the sewer department, Paris. Wonderful, godly young man, and he was a sewer guy. And one day he said, "Can I come and see?" You? I said, "Yeah." So he came into my office and sat down there, and he said, "John, can I just ask you a question?" I go, "Yeah." He goes, um, "Look." 
Could I ask you that any time you see something in my life that's not lined up to the Bible, can you just tell me whether it's in word or deed? Just, just tell me. So I was thinking, wow, that's like so cool. I mean, can you imagine someone coming into your office and saying that? Saying, you know, can you just talk to me every time you see something that's out of line? So I'm going, Luke, sure, I'd be glad to do that. He says, okay, can I ask you one other thing? Yeah, sure. Can this be reciprocal? That's what he said to me. Anytime I see something in your life that needs to be corrected, can I have permission to come and tell you? And suddenly I got nervous. <laughs> then I thought, you know what? That is the best thing anybody could do for me. And I said, yes. And for 10 years, he would come into my office every month and tell me things he saw wrong in my life. And I tell him things I saw wrong in his life. But it was great. And then when I went to Geneva, the first thing I told my elders was the same thing. Guys, let's do this. Would you guys come and tell me when things are going wrong in my life? They all went, oh, that is so cool. And I said, yeah, and I want this to be reciprocal. Oh, okay. So good. So good. So we need to have character. If you want to be a missionary, you must have that character. Number three. Number three. Do you have... The cognition. The cognition. Look it up. That means knowledge. Okay? Just looking for a word that started with C. (laughs) Do you have the knowledge? Now, what does this mean? Well, think about this. Christianity, the ministry, is about what? It's about the Word of God. I mean, here it is. It's interesting that all that God revealed to us that we must know is right here in one book. It's all right here. This is it. This is God's revealed truth to man right here. So it makes sense to me that if you're going to go into full-time vocational ministry as a missionary, you've got to know the Word. You've got to know the Word. Colossians 3.16, let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. By the way, oh yeah, the points are going up. I didn't see that. It's cool. You guys are modern. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, etc. The word of Christ must richly be within us. It's about the word. Hebrews 4.12 For the word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Wow. Well, if that's true, if the word of God can really do that, I'd better know it so I can speak it and say it and counsel people and preach it right. It's critical. I mean, Matthew 13, the parable of the sower. What are we called to do? Sow the word. This is how you do evangelism. Just last week, it was so cool. This couple came to our church four, uh, four weeks ago. This guy, for the last two years, he's been going from occult group to occult group, trying to figure out life. He's an engineer. I'm sorry, he's a doctor. He's a psychiatric doctor, and his wife is also. And he's been trying to figure it out. And finally, one day, someone said, I think the answer is in Jesus. He said, ah, the answer to life must be in Jesus. And so he... Went on the website, looked for Jesus churches, and he found our church. That was good. And he came four weeks, and he made an appointment with me. He says, I want to figure this out. Can you please explain it to me? He came to my house. We sat on our terrace. I sat down. I shared the gospel with him very simply. He and his wife, right then and there, both embraced Christ as Savior. Right there on my terrace. 
And I'm thinking, man, I'm glad I knew how to share the gospel. I mean, completely. I mean, this is just a few days ago. So we'll see now the result of this in their life. I mean, if it was a true conversion or not. But wow, I'm thinking, this is what it's all about. You, you, you just have to be ready. Ready. We must have the cognition. We must know the word of God. And honestly, I've been a missionary for 30 years. And I, I, when I see missionaries come and go, they, they, Europe's a hard place, you know. I, I sense sometimes that many missionaries fail because they're not trained well enough. And especially in the word of God. When I uh, was at Grace Church, I was in such a hurry to go and be a missionary. I just wanted to be a missionary so bad. And I could tell my pastor, Monty Brewer at the time, remember Monty Brewer? One day he just sat me down. He said, John, I want, I want to talk to you. So he pulled me into his office. He was a missions pastor. He said, listen to me very carefully. He said, if I had five years to live, I would train for four and go for one. I sat there stunned because I would have said, I've got five years to go. I would train for one and go for four. And I'd probably would burn out after two. I've never forgotten that. So I told myself, John, get trained. So I slowed down, did all my seminary, got ordained, got in the ministry, and then this guy started coming to Geneva all the time, said, you got to get a doctor of ministry. This guy was Rick. <laughs> I said, no, I don't have time. I'm in the ministry. He said, no, you need it. He won. And guess what? Now my wife, now I'm done with my, you know, extra education. Now she's working. She doesn't like when I say this, but she's actually working on a master's degree in biblical counseling. One class at a time. It might take what? 20 years, 30 years. It's okay. But she's training and it's cool. She just spent a whole week training in Indiana. You know, we, we need the knowledge. We, we've got to continuously train for these things. So is that the passion of your heart? Do you want to know the Bible more and more and more? Number four. Number four. Do you have the capacity? Do you have the capacity? Real interesting. In Ephesians 4 and 11, it says, as I read earlier... Ephesians 4.11 says, And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the service. You've got to have the gifting. To be a missionary or to be a pastor, you've got to have the, the, the gifting. You've got to have what it takes to do it. You've got to be able to have what it takes to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. The question is, can you do that? For example, suppose you say, you know what? I really feel God wants me to be a surgeon. Great. I got one problem. I can't stop shaking, but I really want to be a brain surgeon. I would probably say, maybe you should go into a different line of work. Okay? It's as simple as that. So you go into the ministry. Do you have what it takes to go into the ministry? Spurgeon says this. I should not complete this point if I did not add that mere ability to edify and aptness to teach is not enough. There must be other talents to complete the pastoral character. Here it is, sound judgment, 
Solid experience must instruct you. Gentle manners and loving affection must sway you. Firmness and courage must be manifest. And tenderness and sympathy must not be lacking. Gifts and administration and ruling well will be requisite as gifts of instruction and teaching as well. Very interesting. He's saying that to be in the ministry, you need teaching. That's good. You've got to be a good teacher, but you also need to know how to shepherd. And you also need to know how to, need to know how to administrate. And you also have to have the right social skills. And where do you learn all this? I'll tell you, in the local church. In the local church, where you interact with people and you learn these things. Wow. So the question is, do you have the capacity? Five. You still still with me here? Five. Five. How do you know if you're called to be a missionary? Number one, do you have the craving? Number two, the character. Number three, the cognition. Number four, the capacity. Number five, the confirmation. The confirmation. Boy, this is really interesting. You know, suppose you go, oh, I'm feeling called. What are the people around you saying about this call? Very important. For example, do you have the confirmation from your church? From your church. It's interesting that when Timothy was called, right? Behold, Acts 16.1, a certain disciple was there in the town and the church named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was Greek, and he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Wow, that is so exciting. He had a good reputation. Paul was interviewing people. Hey, what do you think of Timothy? Good guy. This is a reference. Good reference. That is huge. Huge. In Acts 6, the proto-deacons... These guys that were called to serve the tables of the women that had, you know, the, the widows that had been neglected in the food distribution, it says that they needed to have a good reputation. Spurgeon, again, I'm quoting him a lot, the will of the Lord concerning pastors is made known through the prayerful judgment of the church. He's saying the best place To see if someone's called is right there in the local church. He says, it is needful as proof of your vocation that your preaching should be acceptable to the people of God. I had sooner accept the opinion of a company of the Lord's people than my own upon so personal a subject as my own gifts and graces. At any rate, whether you value the verdict of the church or not, one thing is certain, that none of you can be pastors without the loving consent of the flock, and therefore this will be to you a practical indicator, if not a correct one. Isn't that interesting? This is why we in our little church in Geneva, we evaluate elders every two years, including me. Everyone is reevaluated. To be confirmed by the church. Secondly, by your friends. What are your friends saying about you and your call? Proverbs 27, 9. So a man's counsel is sweet to his friend. Ask your friends, you know, they know you really well. I mean, true friends will be real honest with you. They just won't say yes to everything. 
A true friend. You say, I, I'm, really, I'm, I'm really sensing a call from God. Either they'll say, wow, I really see that. Or they're going to go, you are crazy. And if they all say you are crazy, maybe you're crazy. Not necessarily, but that is an indicator. Number three, your family. This is still at the same point. Getting confirmation from your family. In Exodus 20, you know this, fifth commandment, right? What does it say? Honor your father and your mother. It's interesting, when I was going into the ministry and we were sensing a desire to go to Geneva, my dad, I loved my dad. My dad was a great man. I had a high respect for him. He was a piano player. He was a businessman in Geneva. And then unfortunately, after 35 years of marriage with my mom, a wonderful life, my dad became a severe alcoholic. He left my mom. My my parents got divorced. And my my dad sort of had a tragic end of his life. And it was in those tragic years that I was sensing called to go to Geneva. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to call my dad up. So I called up my dad. He was living a debauched life at that point in, in, in Atlanta, Georgia. And I said, Dad, I just need your counsel. I need your help. He says, what about? I said, well, I, Meg and I are feeling that maybe we should be going to Geneva, Switzerland to be a church planner. And I wanted to get your advice on that. He was floored. He said, John, I think that's the greatest thing. I think you should go. You know, you know, you know how I felt about that? Just getting my father's approval even though he didn't know the Lord, it's huge. I'm supposed to honor my parents till the day I die. So I tried to honor him that way and he was wonderful. There's another person you want to get confirmation with and this is really important. How about your spouse? Don't forget to ask your spouse. This is a combined journey. Really important. You know, 1 Peter 3, 7 says we are supposed to honor our wives, men. It was interesting when uh, I was in New York, we were flight attendants, Megan and I were falling in love. And again, I was sensing this, this desire to go in the ministry. And I thought, boy, you know, I've got a real problem. I'm falling in love with her, but I don't know if she's going to want to follow me on this crazy adventure. I was sensing a real desire to go back to Geneva. And so I had this NBC thing that was about to happen. And then just before that, I thought I'd better talk to her. So we we were just falling in love, so we went out to a nice Swiss restaurant in New York. We had fondue, and I was talking to her. I said, you know, Meg, I, I've got a problem. I said, I'm falling in love with you, and she confirmed that she was falling in love with me, so this was, like, really fun and cool and all that, you know. <laughs> I said, well, that's not my problem. That's actually the good part. The problem, I said, is that, and I, 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 I think I just need to tell you, I'm sensing that God is calling me to Geneva, Switzerland, and I think I might end up staying there for the rest of my life. I said that to her point blank. And I said, I don't know if, if you want to do that. And if not, then I think we need to stop this thing right now. Because I, I don't want this to become a real problem for you. So then I thought, oh man, you, you, you just lost her big time. You know, <laughs> I didn't know. She said, look. She said, John, I sense the call of God in your life. I think you should go to seminary and I think you should go to Geneva, Switzerland. Even if it means losing you, that's what you need to do. I thought, man, I want her 10 times more now. I mean, what a woman to say that to someone. I'm willing to lose you because I sense that God is calling you. So I left to LA and we both thought, okay, well, this is it. You know, she was still flying and I had to go to seminary and we thought, no, we didn't have Skype in those days. It was like major expensive phone calls, you know. And the Lord worked it all out. Like a week or two later, 
Pan Am began to assign her L.A. turnarounds. And she kept coming to L.A. all the time. It was like the weirdest thing. Wasn't that weird? That was like weird. We're thinking, okay, maybe God is in this thing, okay? And then, well, you know the rest of the story. We've been married 31 years. And she decided to come. And the Lord has allowed us to be over there 31 years. And guess where we are? Kind of weird, isn't it? Geneva, Switzerland. I don't know how long we're staying, but we're still there. So anyway, all that to say, do you have confirmation? Confirmation. Real important to get confirmation. Uh, one, one other thing, just a side note. You could ask Meg if she would still answer this way. I'm kind of taking a risk here, but she's often said this. A lot of people have said, okay, it's very obvious that John is called to this. How do you feel? Are you, do you feel called in the same way that he feels called? Her answer has always been, I feel called to my husband. My husband has been called to the ministry. So the question is, if I die, would she stay over there? Now, I don't want to answer for her. Nothing commits her to being there, but maybe not. Maybe she'd come right back here because she feels called to me, who is called to the ministry once I'm dead. That's kind of a weird thing to say, but I will one day die. So once I'm dead, you know, she may come right back here. Interesting perspective and question about the call of the spouse. That probably deserves a book. That'd be a good book to write. Okay? Number six. Number six. Number six. How do you know if you're called to be a missionary? Number six. Do you have concurrence? Concurrence. What does that mean? This is the providence of God. Is there agreement in design from God? This is what Newton said about this. Providence is a corresponding opening in providence by a gradual train of circumstances pointing out the mean, the time, the place of actual entering upon the work. What that means is that God opens and closes doors. For example, in 1 Corinthians 16, 8 and 9, Paul says, God has opened doors of ministry for me. Remember? But then in Acts 16, 5 through 10... Paul says he wanted to go to Asia to preach the gospel and says the Holy Spirit said no. So then he wants to go to Bithynia to preach the gospel and the Holy Spirit, Jesus says no. And then finally he is led to Macedonia through the vision, remember, in Troas. So it's very interesting that God does open and close doors. This happened to me. We were, I was in seminary. I, I, when I left New York to go to seminary, I just had this desire to learn. But I only had enough money in my savings for one semester. So I said, okay, I'm putting all my money into this, and we'll just see. So I went out to Talbot Seminary, paid, and the semester was going on, and there was no money coming in. So just before the end of the semester, I thought, okay, well, God is shutting the door. So I told my best friend at the time, Stu, I said, Stu, I think I'm done. He said, John, look, you don't have the faith, but I've got the faith for you. He says, I'm going to pray, and God's going to answer, and God's going to provide all you need. Really, he said that. I thought, wow, okay. I said, I don't have the faith. He said, I've got the faith. I said, okay. One week later, no joke, my grandmother, out of the blue, she lives in Tulsa, Oklahoma, she called me up. She goes, John, this is a strange thing. I've been giving to Oral Roberts on TV for years. She said that. And it just occurred to me just this week that my own grandson is in the ministry. John, 
I would like to redirect, redirect all giving to you. I would like to pay for your entire seminary education, and I would like to give you a computer. They just came out at those days, and I'd like to give you a computer as well. And my grandmother paid for my entire seminary education out of the blue because Stu prayed and because of God's providence in my life. You're going, that's weird. You know, I mean, no, no, that's right. Oh, man of little faith. That is weird. It's incredible. It's exactly what happened. So then I was done. We were married and we just graduated. I was graduating, got ordained. And now we're going to go be missionaries. I have to go raise support. That's scary, guys, really scary. And so I was waiting for my first gig, you know, the first go present your ministry and get a lot of support gig. So I get invited. My first invitation is first graders Sunday school at Grace Church. We're going... Okay, so we go to Grace Church, go to the first Sunday school, and I tell them about the ministry. And they make, make a collection, nickels and pennies and dimes, and the total. We go home, we count it, and I count the total. Exactly one dollar. Look. <laughs> this is in my office, okay? We framed it. And it says, the exact amount of the first contribution we received in 1985, given to us in small coins by the second grade Sunday school class at Grace Community Church in Sun Valley, California, after presenting our ministry for the very first time. Folks, we have been missionaries for 29 years, and God has provided for us abundantly since that day. See, that is the providence of God. That is where God is saying, hey, wait a minute, you know what? I'm in this, and I will provide for you one way or another. For those he calls, he provides. And that has been the symbolic dollar bill in my life. Thinking, you know what, John? Never, ever doubt God. He will provide more than you can even imagine. And he has. Amazing. Seven. We will finish on time. Seven. Do you have the combativeness Do you have the combativeness? 1 Timothy 18. I hate this verse. You'll see why. This command I entrust you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight. Oh, no. The ministry is a fight. We can't forget that. It's a fight. Oh, it's a good fight. But we're supposed to fight the good fight. You want to hear another verse I don't like? 1 Corinthians 16, 8. But I shall remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service has opened to me, comma, and there are many adversaries. Oh, I don't like that part of the ministry. Satan hates it when we go into the ministry. There are adversaries, people who hate what we say, hate what we do. Folks, it is a battle and a fight. And I remember, you know, you go into Paris, we we stopped, we went to Paris. And I was thinking, oh, the Champs-Élysées, perfume, the Eiffel Tower. Hey, what a cool place to go be a missionary, you know. Then Geneva, Switzerland, hello, like missions in the Alps. It's like being called to Honolulu. People going, wait a minute, I don't get this. This is too cool, you know. Well, you know what? We've had some brutal battles. And we had one seven years ago. It was so brutal. I was hospitalized for stress. 
I was in this grungy little French hospital. I was thrown up in the toilet. And I was going, I remember thinking, this is not what I expected. This is not what I expected. Hospitalized for stress. Me. It's brutal sometimes. There are many seasons of grace and joy, but sometimes it can get really, really tough. And those are the days when you go, hey, am I called or not? And if you're called, you hang in there. And God takes you out and he gives you new life. You know, what, what called person in the Bible didn't have major battles? They all had major battles. It just happens. That's the way it goes. It's a fight. Number eight, do you have the commitment? Ah, I love this. 2 Timothy 4.7. This is great. This is great. He just said to Timothy, fight the good fight. Now, Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, 7, listen to this. I have fought the good fight. Ooh, that's nice. I have fought the good fight. I'm looking back. It's done. He's ready to retire. Adoniram Judson was seven years in Burma before seeing the first convert. That's commitment. Jeremiah, the prophet, 41 years of ministry. One guy believed his message, Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian. That's commitment. Let me show you one more picture. I love this picture. This is John Calvin. Why am I showing you this picture? He's really old. Fact. He is being carried to the pulpit. This is his last sermon he's going to preach before he died. And I look at this picture and I say, John, keep going until the end. Don't stop. That is, I'm not saying that I'm in Geneva for the rest of my life. I'm just saying, just be faithful until the end. Just be faithful until the end. Do I have the commitment to keep going? That's what it takes to be a missionary too. Number nine. Number nine. Do you have a casket? Do you have a casket? I mean, that's kind of weird. Well, yeah, I could have used a word with another, with a C, cross. That's so familiar. I wanted to kind of shock you a little bit. Casket, pretty graphic. Yeah, Luke 14, verse 25. <clears throat> Remember this? If anyone comes to me, verse 26, and does not hate his own father and his mother his wife and children and brother and sister, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Who does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And in those days, when he talked about the cross, everyone knew it was an instrument of torture and death. Instrument of torture and death. Am I ready to count the cost? Take a casket. I mean, the probability is that we won't die for our faith, but you never know. No, we're pretty safe, right? You're safe in Kansas. We're pretty safe in Geneva. But do you know that there are five to 600 martyrs per day in the world today? Who knows what the future holds? I'd say most of the suffering that we go through over there is just more cultural things. Just, well, a lot of rejection over the gospel, no question about that. 
Let me tell you, it's almost a funny story, but this actually happened. We were in Paris, and, uh, you know, we'd gone there with these, we're, we're going to go win France for Christ. And I was, you know, I want to go, go do this. Excited. <laughs> and we'd been there a few years, and uh, we had this apartment. And uh, just about did me in. Upstairs, all day, they had linoleum floors, you know. And you could hear these, this lady with high heels, and you hear All day. She's driving me crazy, you know. <laughs> then the kid next door decided to pick up saxophone. <laughs> I mean, it was getting like all the time. And then, I'm not joking, I'm not exaggerating. Downstairs, they buy three dogs. That bark all day. So we're going. It was driving us crazy. And then, no joke, next door, an Arab family moves in with Arab music. Am I exaggerating or not? It was exactly that way for days and weeks and months. It brought us to tears. We brought the police, no joke, to take care of the dogs and the heels and the saxophone. And it was crazy. And it wore us and wore us and wore us. And we began to realize, you know what? This is part of carrying the casket. This is part of carrying the cross. Those were hard days. They were really hard days. Very stressful. And finally, this is the good news. Do you have contentment? Do you have contentment? First Thessalonians 5.17. No, I'm sorry, verse 18. In everything give thanks... For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Well, that's tough, you know. When you're thrown up in the hospital over stress or when you're dealing with this noise that's driving you crazy, to be thankful, that's hard. I've always had a policy in life. This is it. Expect zero. Expect zero. I tell myself, all I deserve from God is what? All I deserve from God is hell. The wages of sin is death. Anything better than hell is pure grace. So I need to thank God for that, even when life is tough. It's still better than hell. That's way better than hell. Amen? So I need to cultivate a content heart. And we still have to do that. It's a daily thing. You just have to cultivate it. Because as soon as you've cultivated a content heart, whammo, something else hits, right? So folks, those are the principles. Ten principles to know whether you're called to be a missionary or not or called to vocational work in the ministry. Let me just finish with this. Some of you may be thinking today, wow, you know, this... Maybe this is for me. I hope so. 
But maybe some of you are going, that's not for me at all. That's okay too. Not everybody's called, right? Not everyone's called to vocational ministry. Not everyone is called to go. Now think of Aquila and Priscilla. Really great couple. 1 Corinthians 16, 19. They were hard workers, but they started a church in their home. They were just faithful church people. Well, you know what? Missionaries need faithful church people behind them. It's, we're all in this together. We are together doing the Great Commission. That is critical to remember. Those who go aren't any better than those who don't go. They're just, it's a different call. So remember that. We all need one another. There's a man that supported us for many, many years. He was a banker in L.A. And one day he stopped supporting us. We didn't know why, so that was okay. We have zero expectations in life, and we understand support comes and goes. And one day, many years later, he was 70 years old. He wrote us this, and I'll end with this. He says, John, I'm sorry I started supporting you without telling you. Let me tell you why. A few months after my honey's death, his wife died. In 2009, I traveled to Australia to visit a couple and their family. We had helped the couple through college and paid for their wedding years back. When I arrived here, I discovered that no one in the family was walking with the Lord. When they lived with us in the 80s, they were, they were walking with the Lord. They also had two sons, ages 23 and 21. They do not know Jesus. When I returned to the States, I suddenly developed a real burden for Western Australia. The entire country is on a downhill way in regard to Christianity. So I shared this burden with my pastor, and he thought I should go. The idea was that I would start a home church until at such time as someone from the seminary had the same burn as I do. So I have researched half the 107 churches here in the Perth area and have found only three churches that I would consider Christ-centered, Bible-believing churches, sad but true. I have now been here two months and the family has invited me to have devotions each week and I am praying for the beginning of the home church. In the meantime, I will begin internet evangelism at least four hours a day. What a great opportunity. Folks, he was called at the age 70 to go to Australia and start a church. And I say, amen. Can I hear an amen? Amen. Amen. Lord, thank you so much. For the way you work in people's lives. Lord, I just pray for this church. Lord, we need more missionaries all around the world. Lord, the, the Great Commission is not over. And I just pray that you would raise up people right here in this congregation and in many other congregations around this country and around this world. Lord, we need help. A lot of people need help. Do your work. Call as you wish. Help this church, Lord. We thank you and thank you again in Jesus' name. Amen.